You're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway Travel Department and Doro Phones for making this podcast possible. Hi, my name is Charlie Bird and for almost 40 years I was a journalist at the coalface of Irish public life. I would like to present a series of podcasts looking back over my career and the stories and the people who have impacted upon me. Today, on a remarkable anniversary, sitting in front of me is the first woman to have been elected President of Ireland. I am, of course, talking about President Mary Robinson. Oh my God, how time flies. Exactly 30 years ago, nearly at this moment in Dublin Castle, when Mary Robinson was inaugurated as the seventh President of Ireland, I was there. Mary, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Charlie. It's a nice coincidence that it happens to be this day, yeah, uh, which I remember so well 30 years ago. Can you remember the morning? What was it like for you? Just the human feeling of what was it like? There are so many memories. I even remember coming out of our home in Sanford Road and there was a crowd gathered outside and, you know, coming in, getting into the big um, Rolls Royce car and uh, the colonel was there, my aide-de-camp, and uh, been driven into St. Patrick's Hall in Dublin Castle. I mean, every time I go into St. Patrick's Hall, I remember... Uh, I remember walking through and seeing the church and state represented, the judges with their uh, robes and their wigs on. um, And uh, luckily my family (laughs) also, uh, you know, visibly there. And um, walking up, escorted by the Tánaiste, and then going up to the podium, which was almost all male. All male. Yes, and then (laughs) taking my seat. And Charlie Hawhey had kindly offered me, and I had accepted it, a quill to actually sign, which was the quill used by de Valera. And then he said, but I want it back, so I had to give it back to him <laughs> immediately afterwards. You but wouldn't have taken a, it, would you? <laughs> no, it was a nice touch, but yeah. it meant I had to dip you know, the ink and then sign at the end, and that, that was something I was keen. And then, of course, taking the oath uh, and feeling a sort of warmth of Tom Finley as Chief Justice as he swore me in. I, I could see in his eyes how positive he was, whereas I was surrounded by people who weren't that friendly, except I remember that Gareth Fitzgerald actually had tears in his eyes. Um, Gareth you know, Fitzgerald yes, had tears in his he, eyes. He was you know, there on the podium as well. So it was, it was a kind of mixed, and then, of course, uh, we, uh, I went out and had to inspect the Guard of Honour I had to put a coat on because it's December. And uh, I remember looking again at the charts to make sure I went in the right direction. And I don't automatically know my left from my right. My right. I'm one of these people, slightly dyslexic or something. So I had to be very careful, you know, to work it out to myself. But so many people said to me afterwards, it was when I saw you on television inspecting the Guard of Honour. That's, uh, that's when I cried, is what they would usually say. That's when I cried, because so many people cried on the day. Absolutely, the emotion was so intense. Yeah. This was a transfer. I mean, we had all. It was all a male bastion. Yeah, and it was a. It was very much, um, uh, you know, the first sort of significant victory of the left, the broad left, if you like, in uh, in Irish history, almost. Did you work for long on, 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 on your inauguration speech? I mean, how many days did you spend? Because your acceptance speech was so marvelous, anyway. I mean, you really cracked everything when you made your acceptance speech. No, and you I, used I, that I think famous, this one. What was the famous expression about rocking the cradle? Well, <laughs> tell me about that. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, that's the one that's most quoted yeah. uh, when I thanked Manon Heron, who instead of rocking the cradle, rocked the system. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, the, inaugura- uh, the inauguration speech was different. Uh, first of all, I was aware that previous presidents hadn't really said much. Uh, Hillary had had a very formal acceptance. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there wasn't much to draw on, if I could put it that way. But for me, it was going to be um, my, my sort of mandate for the seven years. I saw it that way. And so I got some help with it. Um, I got help with the concept of the fifth province. I kind of wanted to address certain issues. For example, um, the, what I'd learned about what was happening around the island of Ireland, that sense of self-development. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure that I'd be a president at different levels, including the local community level. I wanted to link with Northern Ireland, and I use the word love very deliberately, uh, you know. Um, Tell me about using the word love. Well, I just wanted to capture uh, the sense that I had um, because I was lucky enough to have spent 20 years in the Irish Senate representing the uh, um, uh, Dublin University constituents, um, which, who were the graduates of Dublin University, many of whom lived in Northern Ireland. So I had lots of reasons to go, lots of friends there, lots of engagement across the board in various ways. And I was also, through uh, friends like Kevin Boyle and, you know, Tom of a fortnight, um, uh, you know, very aware of the struggle and very aware of the civil rights movement. So I, I kind of really wanted to capture, I mean, 1990 was eight years before the Good Friday Agreement. That's right. And there was conflict every day, and there were killings every day, and, and um, uh, kneecapping of young people from uh, the, the different sides. And it, it was, you know, it, it really weighed on me. And that's why um, I really wanted to say, I am going to uh, try as president to bring something outside politics. I'm going to bring love and friendship. But you, you spoke with that famous phrase for me, it was extending the hand of friendship. Yes, yeah. And it, it actually worked out because it was possible uh, later uh, to uh, visit Northern Ireland and to have groups from Northern Ireland come down to the Arras. You certainly broke the mould there. I think we'll come back to that, but you broke the mould there when you... Um... And then I remember saying, and I, I, I know even as I wrote it in the speech and said it, how on earth will I do this? That I wanted somehow to represent human rights internationally on behalf of Ireland. How on earth would this be possible? I mean, I, there were a lot of questions in my mind about how to fulfill all of this. And that was one of my concerns on, on the day itself, uh, at the lunch. I remember looking out from the table. I was sitting beside Charles Hawhey. Um, it wasn't a great lunch. And he even said to me, I advise that next time you use outside caterers. <laughs> <laughs> but half of me was looking at light dancing through the big windows mm and saying, I'm president of Ireland, how am I going to do all the things I promised in my inauguration speech? You know, it was, it was like that. I mean, just on a, human, on a human feeling, I mean, did you wake up on the days beforehand saying, my God, I'm going to be the president? Oh, did yes. I mean, I mean, at yeah. night, did you yeah. actually wake up at night saying, my God, what am I doing? Where am I going? And you know you went through quite a bloody election campaign. I mean, they did a lot to try and <laughs> derail you and make sure you didn't get to the Oris. Well, that's politics, I'm afraid. It's, yeah. It happened in subsequent campaigns as well. But uh, I did. I mean, uh, we had time because, you know, 
Uh, the election was in early November, in a sense, and this was the 3rd of December. Um, Nick and myself actually got a break away. We went to France briefly, and I had a very interesting encounter with uh, uh, Taoiseach Charlie Hohi. Uh, he was staying in a fancy hotel in Paris, and Nick and myself had been in the countryside, and we came up to Paris to meet him. I had two requests. One was to uh, increase the budget of the office, because I knew from Paddy Hillary, I'd had a private meeting with him, that, you know, it, it was hard to do things if you didn't have the budget for them. And secondly, that I wanted a personal special advisor. And um, Charlie Hawhey actually agreed to increase the budget to far more than I had asked him. That was his style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gave me more than I was expecting. And he didn't have any difficulty about uh, the fact that I wanted a, a certain Bride Rosney to be my a special advisor. He might have thought about it again if he'd understood, but I understood. <laughs> I mean, when, when you were delivering the speech, did you realise the impact that it was going to have in the future? I mean, because this is really, I mean, it is a seminal moment in Irish political history. I mean, not only did you become the first uh, woman president, but it's, it's where you reached out and the things that you said that you wanted to do in, in the job. And you, you said, you know, as you said, you spoke about the fifth province, um, extending the hand of friendship, and also just making sure that the people were brought into the oars. I mean, were you already thinking about the light in the window? Were you? Oh, yes, um, much earlier than that. Um, uh, that some was, people joked about no, the light I, I, in the window. I said um, in the acceptance speech, I said I will put a light in the window for all of those who've had to leave Ireland. Um, and Nick and myself discussed it, and we were told that uh, we couldn't have a candle, which is what I'd originally thought, because <laughs> it might burn the place down. Who told you that? Uh, some, somebody in the Oris when we visited because um, I didn't know the Oris at all, but we yeah, went yeah. and visited um, and we were very warmly welcomed by um, Paddy Hillary and his wife. I mean, they were really very gracious and very uh, very kind to us in that sense. Mm. But we were told no, not again. So I actually got a lamp made specially before the inauguration so that uh, it wouldn't have an off switch. And then we had to decide where to put it. And that came later because we had our living quarters upstairs in the Oris, whereas the Hillary's had lived at the side. Yeah. Um, but we decided to live in the rooms above the formal rooms. Yeah. And the kitchen was between the pillars looking out on uh, the road through the Phoenix Park. And that was ideal symbolism to me, that the light would be in the kitchen and you could see it from the road. It's amazing. Because I can remember, first, first of all, people talking about the light in the window. And some people were sort of you know, poo-pooing it and not certain about it, and yet it had such a powerful impact as it went on. I completely underestimated the light. Completely. Uh, very often, I wasn't the one to mention it. Yeah. Um, in visits, and some of them were state visits, but a lot of them <clears throat> were working visits, especially to the United States, for example, or Canada or parts of Europe, and I would be greeted by large numbers of the Irish, and whoever was speaking would say, we want to give you a special welcome because you have that light in the window. We so appreciate that light in the window. We so value that light in the window. That's amazing. It's amazing. What I love is, and again, towards the end, of the, the very end, the last line in the speech, what was it? I am of Ireland. And what did you say after that? Come dance with me in Ireland. Um, I, I, again, I think I was given those lines from WB Yeats. I can't remember exactly who gave them to me, but they exactly fitted my mood. I wanted to express the importance of culture. The importance, I'd already referred to both Seamus Heaney um, right. and his lines, um, and uh, Ivan Boland, um, finding a voice where they found a vision uh, for women. Um, but um, 
uh, I, I did get into some trouble with Come Dance With Me because people thought I was serious and, and, and sometimes came up to me and said, President, can we have a dance? But, but funnily enough, later, especially in my uh, realizing rights days when I was working in African countries with a small NGO, and even now, I love to dance as a form of expression. It's not particularly formal dancing yeah, either. Yeah, yeah, I know what of, you mean, yeah. Yeah, but, but it's, it's, it's communication through dance. But even and Mandela really used to it. do that, I think. Oh, yes, yeah, I, we'll and I danced with him. him. <laughs> you know, we'll talk about Mandela later on. <laughs> and maybe others you danced with as well. Our health service is here for you this winter, and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working, from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850 24 1850 for more information. From the HSE. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Say hello to our Premium Plus e-paper bundle. The interactive replica edition of the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent and The Herald. Every paper, every day, delivered to your tablet, phone or desktop for less than €3.50 per week. Subscribe at independent.ie. Up close and independent. In your, in your inauguration dress, you did talk, as you said earlier, you touched on human rights. I mean, you were a human rights lawyer. Is that a way of describing you before you came to the Oris? I think very much, yes, a human rights lawyer. I was also lucky for 20 years to be a senator, so I could do things in the Senate. And I was also teaching law. So I was, but it was all about law. So where, when you were growing up, tell me about growing, just a little bit growing up in Ballina, what was it like? Well, that's where I got my early interest in human rights because I was wedged between four brothers, <laughs> two older <laughs> than me and two younger than me. Of course I had to be interested in human rights and gender and yeah. using my elbows. Um, but uh, I was lucky because my parents were both medical doctors. We weren't a political family. And they did impress upon me over and over again that I had the same opportunities and they would see to it as my brothers. But nothing in Irish society was saying that. I mean, I couldn't become an altar boy, which my brothers did. I had to wear a scarf in church. I hated it. And everything, um, my options were very limited. I actually decided in my final year in, in, um, in, in boarding school uh, to offer myself as a postulant to, be, to become a nun. I had tried to become a poet. I went to the Yates Summer School <laughs> twice, two years in a row. I was, I was at the inaugural Yates Summer School and I went the following year at 15 and 16 and tried to write poetry and it just didn't work. And I didn't want to get married 
And I had an aunt in India, um, uh, Mother Ivy, she became Sister Ivy later, um, who had spent a lot of her life um, teaching, first of all, elite uh, children and then very poor children. They, yeah. they, they changed after Vatican II. And she wrote wonderful letters and they impressed me greatly. And it was clear she was making a difference. So I decided that's my best option. Fortunately, the Reverend Mother at the time uh, said, well, Mary, um, uh, of course, um, if you are clear in this decision next year, but why don't you go away for a year? And literally, my parents were so proud of me, they sent me to Paris for a year, thinking I would come back and go into the nunnery. But of course, Paris was Paris. So in the first few months in the Ors, did you see did you see the path that you were going? Was it difficult for you? Did you feel under pressure? Every step was, was quite difficult. Uh, I remember the day after the inauguration, I went and opened, I went, to a, I went to a homeless event deliberately. It was in the calendar that I would do that. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't make a speech because I didn't know if I could make a speech. Uh, the theory was the president could only make a speech written by the government. And, That's right, yeah. And I gradually pressed that open a little bit. And then I went to Norway for the funeral of King Olaf, a, a beloved king there. Yeah. And uh, then uh, uh, there were invitations to do things in, in Britain to take an honorary degree from Cambridge University and to work with Václav Havel, I remember, on the Bank for Eastern Europe, on the logo of that yeah, bank. Yeah. And I was very thrilled to be meeting with him because I was a fan of his, of Václav Havel. And um, the government were apparently thrown by this. And anyway, Charlie Hawhey decided I was doing too much and he got a constitutional opinion and came to see me. And we discussed it in my private office. But I was actually on top of the issue because I was living it. And I'm a constitutional lawyer. Yeah, yeah. So I had better arguments. And he had at least the something rather to say, ah, he said, lawyers, um, you get what you pay for. And he threw the opinion onto the ground. And he never raised it again. And what was it like meeting him by the... Because, you know, the Taoiseach has to go up and report to you That's every right, so would, What was, what was it like meeting him when he went, went up there? He was an interesting man to meet. Uh, um, uh, he he uh, clearly, in the first few meetings, did not like the fact that I was president, but we kind of warmed to each other more right. um, because he was somebody who admired people who got things done and he could see that I was getting things done. Yeah. I do and remember, um, you know, celebrating with a bottle of champagne when he um, took his final meeting with me and... <laughs> On your own or with him? Well, no, um, afterwards. Um, <laughs> Yourself and Nick sat down. and my secretary, Peter and Nick. <laughs> oh, God, he's gone. <laughs> oh, great. Tell me, so you, you started to invite people to the Earth. You invited travellers. You invited yeah. some from, the, from the, uh, the gay community, from the north of Ireland. Tell me a little bit about that, your decision to draw people into the Earth. And that was greatly helped by the fact that I had the budget to do it. Right. Um, but I was very keen to open up the Oros completely. Uh, we opened it up um, for uh, parties during the summer. Yeah. And there had been a tradition the Red Cross would come, and I just expanded on that greatly. But I wanted to single out certain groups. And very early on, I invited Glenn, which was the organisation of gay and lesbian yes. people, because I'd done the gay Nor um, David Norris yeah. case in the Court of Human, the Commission on Court of Human Rights, and I'd always been actually. And it was a landmark decision, a landmark on, case, on, which on, yeah. yes, on, on removing the criminal, uh, um, criminal penalties for uh, consenting male adults, if you like. 
I had said in my, my speech as auditor of the Law Society in 1967 that we should remove the ban on divorce, we should change the law on homosexuality and remove the criminality, we should um, uh, legalise contraceptives, yeah. etc. So all of those were things that I, very early on I had wanted to see implemented and it was good that uh, we were changing our attitude um, on gay and uh, lesbian rights and, and, and transgender. And... So um, I invited Glenn with David Norris. We had a lovely meeting, first of all, and coffee in the reception room. And then I said, as I often did, now let's go outside to the steps and look at the light in the window, and that's where the photo will be taken. And I noticed that several of them departed, hid behind pillars. Hid behind the pillars. Could not be photographed, even though they were the leadership, because they weren't out to somebody, maybe to their grandmother, maybe to their workmates, even though they were the leadership in 1990. And I was absolutely taken aback. I, I remember being in tears a little bit. You know, it was so sad that such was the discrimination. You know, and I'm so proud now of the two referenda on same-sex marriage and on a removal of the... Mary, I have to say this. Uh, you know, I got involved in the marriage equality campaign because of the previous, mm. I was working in RT, so I couldn't. But people, have, the, some of the friends I met there have always told me how powerful it was that you invited them up to the Oris when you were the president. And it is just, you, when, when they talk about it, you can see the emotion in their eyes. It is really remarkable. Well, I felt that emotion that some of them couldn't stand with their president and be public. I mean, you know, that, that really struck me. And, and you uh, shook hands with people who had AIDS. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I did note the convening power. Uh, I remember inviting a group of unemployed and the lovely sentence used <laughs> in thanking me, the unemployed don't get many invitations. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a lovely way of saying yes, you know, thank you. And the travelling community I had up a number of times because um, I had a group of women up, but also I had helped um, a kind of competition for designing um, what would be the best uh, you know, travelling site architecturally yeah. that would meet the needs of the travelling community. And we, we had a um, uh, we hosted a reception for um, for the prize winning of, of that competition, and and I remember, uh, you know, the, the women who came down from Northern Ireland were great fun, because for most of them, I mean, they were coming out of um, the you know the, the housing estates, um, loyalist and, and republican, because they were meeting each other. The men were afraid to do it or didn't want to do it, but the women bravely did, and that's what I wanted to honour. And then they came down together on the train. Most of them had never been in Dublin before, yeah. and they were dolled up to the nines. <laughs> and, I mean, we, we, we had such excitement, you know, they, the sheer sense of the recognition they were getting from coming to this fine building and meeting with a president and being told that what they were doing was important. Well, given that you talked there about the North, I can remember, because I was there in West Belfast the day that you shook Jerry Adams's hand. Now, there was a lot of pressure on you. So tell me a little bit about that day and the pressure that was applied to you when you were due. You decided to go to the North to make a visit and that there you would shake Jerry Adams's hand. And this was before... The peace process had really developed, matured, as it were. Because I had been on several visits already to Northern Ireland and had these groups coming down, I got six invitations from Republican West Belfast from different groups. One of them environmental group, I remember, but there were mainly women's groups and local groups. 
And I was told, of course, that I would have to um, uh, shake the hand of local politicians. And Agnes McCormack, I remember, told me, you must greet Gerry Adams, otherwise you disrespect that community. And I said, fine. You know, I, and they, certainly the British government definitely didn't want me to go. And frankly, Dick Spring didn't want me to go. But um, uh, he, he wouldn't forbid me because that wouldn't be appropriate. So I, I, I got the sense that you know, there was a lot of pressure. Um, as soon as I arrived outside the college and the, the children with the Irish flags were there to greet and yeah. singing, I knew it was the right thing to do. I will never forget, and you obviously witnessed it too, the sense of a community That's right. uh, breathing um, because they were getting that recognition, the oxygen of being recognised for who they were, yeah. um, Republican West Belfast. And, uh, you know, the, the music and the singing... The, the, the handshakes with all the politicians, including Jerry Adams, were out of um, cameras. Camera, that's right. And yeah. Actually, that was agreed by Sinn Féin. Um, uh, and I think, you know, it was, they didn't want that to dominate. It, it did, of course, dominate with cartoons and everything else. Yeah. And uh, I was very heavily criticised, um, particularly by the Irish Independent, I recall, um, in the days Surprise, afterwards. surprise. And then uh, um, they, they did a poll in the Sunday Independent and something like 93% of the Irish people fully agreed. Fully with agreed. What I had done. So... You know, it died, but it was a lot of pressure, yeah. But, you know, it helped to nurture the whole peace process because that's what was happening beneath the surface. John Hume, all sorts of developments going on in relation to... I was aware of what John Hume was doing because I had met him in Derry right. and he had showed me um, what he was trying to do and, 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 you know, he took it out of his pocket and showed me the, the sort of short piece of paper that he was working on yeah. um, to, 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 to try to build peace and that he was talking to Jerry. What did you think of him, by the way? Oh, I, I was very fond of, of um, uh, John Hume. Uh, I, I was pleased to give the John Hume lecture just after his death uh, for the McGill Summer School this year because it allowed me to express some affection. Um, and then I mainly talked about my passion for climate justice. But um, Another event which sticks in my memory, because I ended up in New York when you came back, you went to Somalia. Uh, as a head of state, you took a big gamble uh, because of the civil war, the famine that was going on there. And you took a big gamble to go there as the Irish head of state. Why did you decide to go there? And what type of pressure was put under you maybe not to go there? I was approached by um, the um, Irish aid agencies Concern, Trocra, um, Goal, um, all three of them together. Uh, they came up to the Aras to say things are really bad. We're not able to get to the feeding stations. There's a conflict between the warlords. And if you would come, you could make a great difference. And then the question was how to uh, contrive this. And so we contrived it that RTE would be invited and a certain journalist called Charlie Bird would also be part of that. And I remember that you, tr you, you thought you'd got your photos and you were leaving. That's right. And Bride stopped you because the question hadn't been put, um, would I go myself? Yeah, and yeah. I was able to say an answer publicly yeah, yeah. on television. Yeah. Yes, I would if the government will let me. And that put the pressure on the government. Right. And they decided to agree. And it wasn't easy and it wasn't safe. 
There's no doubt about that. But at least it was very worth doing because I was able to go afterwards and meet with um, uh, Boutros Boutros Ghali, the then Secretary General. Yeah. It was my first time uh, sort of visiting the UN headquarters as such and meeting with him. And I pleaded with him and he said, you've no idea how important it is to me that a head of state of a Western country would care as much. That's what I need. And then he, and, and that... But it took it an emotional that, toll on you, the visit, that, didn't it? Clinton sent um, his troops in um, and, and it was pretty disastrous. Um, but no, I mean, I, I've always been able to stand up to bullies. And in, in um, uh, Somalia at the time, I spoke to both warlords and, um, you know, did frighten my foreign minister at the time. <laughs> was more than a little, you know, upset. Um, the visit to Somalia, did it have a personal impact? Because I saw the pictures, the images of you. And again, they were such, they were really so powerful. I mean, you, it took an emotional toll. And mind you, it takes an emotional toll on everybody who, who visited there. Yeah, it, 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 it was strange. While I was um, working, I was fine because I made a mistake initially. Um, I was asked, I, I went along and there were long queues of mainly women, but also some men holding babies or very young children in their arms, clearly waiting for food. And one of the women handed me her baby and I was holding the baby and a journalist, a photographer said, President, this way. And I swung round with the baby and I immediately felt ashamed yeah. because I was, I was doing the photo opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And I think I did a wonderful mindset that helped me a lot. Um, during the uh, work time, I decided I am going to focus on um, trying to bring relief, trying to bring comfort, trying to help. And I'm going to pay no attention to whatever press corps is around. And there were quite a few. Mm. And that helped me greatly, that kind of discipline. But when I was faced with, um, later in Nairobi, we had a press conference before I left to go back to, to go to New York. Um, and I was faced with telling the world what I had seen. And that's when my voice faltered. Yeah. And I, I found it hard. And, and, and David Andrews was banging the table beside me because he was very emotional as well. And uh, I thought I had failed to communicate the message. No, you hadn't. And I was so angry. And then I went up to the bedroom and Nick could tell I was very upset. And then I saw it on television and I've seen it a few times since. And every time it evokes the same memories of, you know. And you also went to Rwanda. Yes, it was easier to go to Rwanda not too long after the genocide. Just there. after the genocide in 1994, um, because um, you know the, I, I had visited a number of African countries, and so uh, it was terrible. Um, uh, it was I, I still have very vivid memories of the raw post-genocide. Um, it's blood on um, logs where heads or limbs have been chopped off. Right. It's um, corners of churches where you still have shoes and clothes of children and, and others, you know, and, and, and you can feel the stench of blood. Um, I went back to Rwanda as president a second time in order to bring it to the United Nations when they were, we were marking the 50th anniversary. I was there as president and I used my seven minutes to bring Rwanda to the table. And I went back to Rwanda a third time as president of Ireland. Nick was with me the first two times. He wasn't allowed to be with me on the third visit because it was a pan-African women's conference right. in Rwanda, less than three years after the genocidal killing in March 1997. I think I'd already announced that I wasn't seeking another term, but I went to, that was one of the visits that I was making um, in, in my final months. 
Just before we move on, I just want to ask you about, for me, again, one of the spine-tingling moments, because I have the, the official programme sitting in front of us there. When you visited Britain, you went to see the Queen. It was an official visit. The, I think it was the first official visit well, by an Irish the, head of state. The first visit um, was a visit to have tea with the Queen. Right. And that was the one that was most impactful in one way, right. because... Um, uh, it was a private visit in some ways, but the Queen understood its importance and she had allowed there to be photographs taken of the two of us. And I have never seen, a, then or since, a bigger bank of cameras from all around the right, world. And they photographed the two of us. Um, and then in um, 1996, there was the official visit. Yeah. Um, and I, that was at the invitation of John Major. But... Um, uh, I had lunch with the Queen, the Irish guards had a guard of honour and it was a very public occasion and it was, it was a massive... Mary, visit. I have to tell you, I was standing there, I was filming that, I was standing beside Dick Spring mm. and I heard Auron Naveen yes. being pumped out across mm. Buckingham Palace mm. and I remember Dick Spring just looking at me and I was looking at yeah. him and I was looking at you. Mm. It was just remarkable. Yeah. Auron Naveen. Yeah. In Buckingham Palace, mm. it yeah. was incredible. Mm. I mean, for you, it must have been just such an emotional moment. It was a very special moment. And um, I, I'm glad that it led to, you know, the, the wonderful visit of the Queen with President McAleese to Ireland and the wonderful subsequent state visit by President Michael D. Higgins. I mean, uh, you know, it, it showed that we were able to further good relations. And I think, you know, that, that can still continue. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Our health service is here for you this winter and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850 24 1850 for more information. From the HSE. Why did you decide 
not to go for a second term. Tell me about, I know I read Kian McCormack's piece which you, where you, know, you sort of talked a little bit maybe about being bullied to take the UN job or to move on or whatever. Just, I mean, tell me a little bit. There you were having done almost seven years in the Oris and then you decided to move. Be honest. Tell me what, no, I what can prompted be, I can you. be very honest. Um, it, it was the hardest decision uh, because I wanted to continue as president. I loved the job. Um, but I also recognised that what had excited me about the job was, in fact, um, opening it up, extending the potential, uh, being a constitutional lawyer who saw that the earlier so-called traditions <clears throat> were not appropriate. But the president could be very active locally, nationally, internationally, and why not? So I wanted, but there was also a lot of routine involved. And in many ways, what people, my family, Nick, and most of my friends said to me, look, you've opened the office up. Why don't you leave it now to somebody else to build on that? Yeah. And, I still, and we went to Malta, Nick and myself, in February to make up our minds. For the first time in our married life, we fought, we cried, and we came home with no decision. <laughs> we still hadn't decided. And I was gradually coming round and seeing that I'm not great on routine, and there's a lot of routine involved. I had been, you know, the excitement of all the firsts, of all the... Yeah, yeah. And I said, OK, I will not seek a second term. And we, it was a big surprise, I know. We kept it kind of that I would announce. I didn't know when I announced it what I was going to do, and it worried me greatly. How do you mean you didn't know what you were going to do? You didn't know the UN job no. was...? Um, about three weeks later, the first High Commissioner announced suddenly, with nobody knowing he was going to do it, that he was... <laughs> Uh, resigning and going back to be foreign minister of Ecuador. I didn't even know there was an office of high commissioner. I looked it up and I said, oh my God, this would be wonderful. And the Irish government um, very, um, you know, uh, helpfully and, uh, um, uh, put me forward as their candidate and, and canvassed mightily for me because there were other candidates. And um, then I met Kofi Annan in July and he said, well, the office, um, we've lost our high commissioner and I've had to remove the deputy We've nobody there. We need you. We need you. You must come in September when the General Assembly will meet. And I was afraid, quite honestly, and I'm being honest here, that if I didn't say yes, then he would say, look, I can't wait. And he'd appoint somebody else. And then I'm back to, would I go back to the law library? Um, would I just make, and I was the main breadwinner, you know, of our family yeah, for, for good reasons. No reason why not. And uh, so I said yes. I, I've always regretted that I didn't ask Kofi Annan to wait. He, for his part, often boasted that Mary Robinson, when she was president, thought the job of Hike was so important, she came to me. Wasn't that wonderful? And I was saying, no, no, I made a mistake. I should have, you know. Did you make a mistake? I made a mistake, and I admit it very openly. But did you make a mistake not going for a second term? In, 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 no, with hindsight, no. 30 years on, no. you're sitting here. No, this never... very moment, you're up in... Remember, this very moment, you're now up in Dublin Castle. <laughs> you're about to be inaugurated <clears throat> as Uthron the Heron. 30 it, years on, just tell was, me. It was the greatest honour of my life. Those seven years were the most special seven years of my life, but I did the right thing. I know I did the right thing. Okay, so what I want to do, I want to just talk a little bit about Nelson Mandela because I was there again when you <laughs> made the state visit. God, I see it would be a lot of places with you. But he had a powerful, he's an incredible man. It was a great honour to represent Ireland at his, his inauguration. 
it bore some similarities in a much bigger scale to my <laughs> inauguration, particularly uh, when he inspected the Guard of Honour and the um, jets flew That's overhead. Right, yeah, it and it, it was a huge moment. And uh, that was the inauguration. And then I paid the state visit, which I think yes, is the one right. you're talking yeah. about in yeah. 96. Yeah. And there was no real issue between Ireland and um, South Africa other than friendship. So it was a very nice state visit. Yeah. Um, and then RTE went home and I had noticed the wonderful young musicians playing upstairs. And I said to Nelson Mandela, there were, there were, there were one group of white Afrikaner young playing um, a quartet beautifully. And then there was an African singing and dancing group and they alternated. And I said to him, could we go up and thank them? And he said, leave it with me. And then as soon as the pudding was given to us, he said, we'll go up now. And I remember as we went up those stairs, how he had to lean on me. You know, his legs weren't great at that stage. And he, so he leant heavily on me, we went up. And we first of all listened to the music, and then we went over to the dancers. And of course, he immediately started, and I started, and we shuffled in with the dancers. And um, it Dancing. was a wonderful moment. Oh my God, <laughs> it is just... But... You then, you took the job, you, he asked you to join the elders and you become heavily involved. You know, what chair of the elders? So tell me a little bit about the elders. We, we may go back to the UNHCR, the High Commission, but I'm really powerful, the elders, this group of people who are, who are there now. And you have a huge involvement with this uh, group. Yes, Nelson Mandela was persuaded to bring this group together in 2007. And... Archbishop Tutu was our first chair. Grassa Michelle, of course, was an elder. Jimmy Carter was a really very committed, wonderful elder. Ila Bat um, of India, who founded the Self-Employed Women's Association. Um, Gru Brundtland, the former Prime Minister of Norway. Um, Marty Atasari, the former President of Finland, um, etc. Et and, and Kofi Annan, of course. And uh, he asked us uh, to work for to be independent, and that was the first thing, to be very independent and to work for peace and human rights. And we added sustainable development um, in, in the world. And to do it um, uh, in, a, in a humble way. He said, when you go to a place and uh, are there, people there know that place better than you. So listen. <laughs> I remember him saying that. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. And so a lot of what we do is below the radar, you know, um, uh, and... Uh, we are still very preoccupied with conflict situations. I remember going with Kofi Annan to Cote d'Ivoire when there was fighting in the street and Archbishop Tutu was with us, the three of us. And, um, you know, uh, some of it was not very safe. A lot of what we do also is working with civil society on campaigns, like the campaign against early child marriage. We helped to form a, a big NGO called Girls Not Brides, which flourishes now in, in addressing that issue because the elders lent their, um, you know, their, their convening power to it. And uh, so that's part of what we do. And uh, I was with Kofi Annan on his last mission. It was to Zimbabwe, and he wasn't feeling very well. It was in um, July 2018. Um, and on the way back, he got pneumonia and complications and never recovered. And then I've now, I'm now, since then, um, the, the chair of the elders. Just I want to ask one thing in my head. When you were, had your role as commissioner for human rights, at the end of it, did the Americans put pressure on you? Did, did you get a lot of heat from the Americans? Well, I was 
elected because I, you know, um, uh, Kofi Annan nominated me to the General Assembly. The General Assembly actually elects, which gives you a certain independence yeah. as High Commissioner, um, which is good for human rights, um, for a four-year term. And then I decided not to seek a second term, but I was persuaded to take an extra year because the human rights community felt so strongly that for once there was a voice for human rights and they wanted to keep me. So I agreed to do an additional year, which started on 9-11 started on nine the coincidence. And that was my final year. So, of course, I had to be the voice uh, giving out to the Americans for failing to uphold their international human rights standards, oh. for things like torture and rendering people in other countries for torture and doing terrible things to the Muslim population out of fear and so on. And so um, uh, I actually um, felt that the situation was so difficult that I would indicate to Coffee that I would be actually prepared to stay for the full term because it, it, it was needed. But he was getting very bad vibes from the United States who did not want me to continue uh, any longer. And he appointed Sergio Vera de Mello. Then Sergio went to Bangkok for a while and was um, involved in, the, was killed in a bomb um, in, in um, not in Bangkok, in, um, uh, in, in Iraq. Here we are today and... The, the, this is the 3rd of December. The 3rd of November was the election in the United States. Were you, like the rest of the world, watching what was happening in America with Donald Trump and Joe Biden? I mean, did it concern you, watching what happened in the days afterwards? Because for me, as a journalist, it was, it was a worrying time. I set my alarm at 3 a.m., and um, as the count progressed and we saw this red wave, if I could put it that way, it was very worrying. But I had been told, you know, we, we, we were warned about this, so I kind of kept my faith, if you like. Uh, some around me were saying, we're gone, we're gone. And I said, no, wait. And actually, the Republicans did better in both the House elections and in the Senate than was expected. But luckily, um, uh, Joe Biden... Um, got um, the not only the popular votes, but also uh, the votes from the Electoral College. And finally, he was elected on the same day as me, which was kind of... Right. And he has his connections in Ballina. That's and, right, yeah. And, I, you know, I've met him a number of times. I had the pleasure of giving an honorary degree in Trinity as Chancellor when he was um, Vice President. Um, so, um, you well, know, uh, I, I'm sure he'll come on a visit to Ireland. It'll be good. What do you think of Donald Trump? I don't even want to express a view about that gentleman. Um, as elders, we have to, we've been very explicitly critical of how damaging he has been to the multilateral system. Um, you know, the UN doesn't tend to call anybody out particularly by name or by thing, um, but the elders will if necessary, and we have uh, talked about the damage he has done to the multilateral system. Um, so uh, that's, all I, that's all I would say. Um, uh, Climate change... Yes, I, I like to talk about climate justice because I came to the climate issue through the lens of human rights. When I'd finished my five years as High Commissioner, I wanted to work as a small NGO on the rights that really matter if you don't have them, rights to food and water, health, education, and work in African countries. So I formed this small organization, Realizing Rights, and I couldn't understand why people kept saying to me, but things are so much worse now. And the worst they meant was... We just don't know what's happening. Is God punishing us? Uh, we, we can't predict. We have long periods of drought and then flash flooding, and it's destroying the village, it's destroying the school. This never happened. 
this is outside our experience. But even today, I think the Secretary General of the United Nations is talking about the world is facing... Uh... Yeah, but the difference is, I was coming either from New York, where I was based for this work, or Ireland, um, where I was, you know, thing, um, to uh, see this problem in a completely different way because it was affecting earlier and disproportionately countries and communities that weren't responsible for what was causing the problem. Because I'd been reading up on the science... Um, and, uh, you know, it was that injustice and layers of injustice, the gender injustice within that, the intergenerational injustice that the children remind us of, the injustice against nature um, because we're not respecting um, the ecosystems that sustain us and biodiversity and we're causing the extinction of species and the injustice of the pathways to development of, of different regions. So now I'm, I'm really very passionate about this issue and I'm so glad that young people in particular get it and have read the science and uh, are pressurizing my generation. And we are seeing a turn. And I think COVID, funnily enough, is helping. But would you be worried, just when we're talking about the pandemic, that in the poorer uh, countries of the world, will they be able to get the, um, the vaccine? We have to ensure that. That has to be part of How the How important is that for you now? That is absolutely important. It's very important for the elders. We're part of a campaign um, with the um, head of UNAIDS now, Winnie, who's a good friend of mine, has, you know, we're, we're working together to ensure that there will be access to vaccines for the developing countries, um, equally with uh, developed and at the same time. I just want to talk about, uh, for me, uh, I'm over 70 now, um, but grandkids, I've got grandchildren, you've got grandkids. I mean, tell me about the importance now. You've had such an amazing life. I mean, it is incredible just listening to it here. And we haven't touched on half of it. But tell me about your, ki- your grandkids. Tell me a little bit about the human Mary Robinson. <laughs> well, actually, my own children and um, uh, my wider family, and of course, in particular, Nick, um, they have been extremely important to me. And now um, the great joy of seven grandchildren, the youngest, Aubrey's um, third child, was born on the 1st of September. So uh, I, I feel very blessed, very blessed. And um, we try to keep in as much contact as possible with them. And it's keeping me in contact. I have long conversations with my 15-year-old granddaughter. Uh, I don't see her too often. She's out in Hoths now. Um, it's harder. Um, and I, I, I understand how tough it is for young people, you know, and I really feel that. And at the same time, I also feel how much young people now are in a different relationship with their grandparents. It's a more equal relationship because they understand the digital and the technical and they can fix things that leave me very confused as an elder. So it's very nice to have that intergenerational, um, more even relationship um, between us. But you have passed on a mantle, haven't you? Well... You know, uh, uh, I, I'm not done yet, for a start. You're not done yet, I love it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and uh, what I'm doing every day now is I'm actually working harder than I was before COVID because I used to travel to events, speak at events, persuade people, and then travel back, um, mostly on aeroplanes. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to fly much less, which is good because that reduces emissions, Um, because I can do it on Zoom. But the trouble is, I'm more accessible on Zoom. So I'm Zooming to conferences and to, um, uh, you know, talking shops um, several times a day. And it is exhausting, to be honest. Um, I've realised I'm going to have a good break during the holidays. I'm I'm not going to do any of it. 
Mary, thank you very much <laughs> for revisiting what has been a most remarkable journey for the past 30 years to the very present day. Let everyone continue to stay safe in these uncertain times and let our planet be protected as well as its people. Sloan Gafol, Mary Robinson, thank you very much. This podcast was produced by Simon Murta and engineered by Mark Murphy. <laughs>